0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, we're after a long trip through uh, intertestamental history. In Four hundred years we were there uh the, you know <laughs> it felt like it thank you vicky <laughs> in a way. in a good way it felt like 400 years in a good way though you know cuz that's what you always say when something feels like 400 years in a good way uh, <laughs> this is this is what i got to put up with you know uh, <laughs> from the front row too it's like it's uh, <laughs> So we have been uh, 400 years in intertestamental history, and finally, after that long hiatus, we are back to the Bible, which is good for me because I, I enjoy that more than anything else. So, um, so before we get really into well, all that we're going to talk about tonight, let's just sort of remember some pertinent information for what we're going to be talking about tonight because Really, what we've been talking about and what we are going into, they do overlap to a degree. All the stuff that we've been talking about in the intertestamental portion is hopefully going to pay dividends as we kind of start to immerse ourselves in the culture that has already been set up during that, that period of time. So if you'll remember some key information, in 37 BC, Herod secured the position as king of the Jews from the Roman Senate. So they brought him in, or he went to Rome, uh, and after the de- several years after the death of his father and the Roman Senate, who had control of the area that we would know as the Holy Lands, or Israel, um, they had control of that area as what they would call a client state. They were putting basically people that would serve Rome's interest in control, just keep things under control. Herod's father died, and so Herod eventually, several years later, went to get control of this land in Rome, and by petition of Mark Antony, uh, he gains control of the Holy Lands, and they basically give him the title, not basically, they do give him the title, King of the Jews. And so Herod has control of, of this land, and he is, you know, doing everything that he can to maintain some semblance of diplomacy with the Jews in Israel, but he is an Idumean. So for that period of time, he is king of the Jews, and he's a child of Esau. So Idumean means he's an Edomite. That means a descendant of Esau. So for the moment, for that little period of time, the king of the Jews is Esau, or Esau's uh, child. Uh, so that's important to kind of pin that in your mind especially as we start getting in the New Testament. The next part is also important, too. During the two decades from 31 B.C. to 11 B.C., this is kind of the, um, known as sort of like the sweet spot of Herod's reign. He is very successful. He's building all kinds of things. He's uh, seen as very ruthless, um, but he also appeased Rome in every regard, and they, he is keeping things under control during that time, building tons of things, Renovating, I would say renovating the temple, but it's hardly considered a renovation. It it is in almost every way a rebuild, you know, altogether. And it is this massive structure that is many times the size of Solomon's temple. And before that, Solomon's temple was considered to be, you know, the the thing in the ancient world. And till Herod comes along and builds this temple that's many times the size of, of Solomon's temple and much more impressive. Uh, to the point that all the Jews are impressed by it and obviously grateful for it. It buys him some little bit of collateral with the Jews and allows him to kind of have more of a peaceful reign and keep the peace. They at least respect him. But he is ruthless. He kills some of his kids, some of his own sons, because he suspects that they're trying to gain, gain his throne. He orders uh, that when he dies, that he wants a bunch of notable men in the area to be killed as well so that the country will be seen as grieving. Uh, there's a lot of things that he does that are just absolutely insane. Because as Herod got older, especially from 11 BC on until he eventually dies somewhere around 4 BC, we'll talk about that next week. Or actually, we're not going to meet next week. We'll meet the week after that. So in two weeks, um, when he dies somewhere around 4 BC, he is just full-blown crazy. Uh, absolutely lost it. I th- perhaps dementia or some, some something like that. Uh, he happens to him as he grows older. So as he grows older, Herod becomes alarmed that no one's going to mourn his death, and so he, like I said, he orders that uh, many distinguished men be killed at the time of his death, so that there's a display of grief that everybody sees people are sad across the country. This act is not actually carried out, but it, it, it just gives you a glimpse into how crazy he actually is. All those things, in regards to Herod, help to make what happens in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Matthew, make a little bit more sense in, in terms of how crazy he goes over Jesus being born. But we're going to deal with a couple other things by way of introduction before we actually get into that material. And I want to uh, kind of help us to think about how we're wanting to go through the New Testament and what exactly we're doing when we're studying the New Testament. And all the things that we've got to pay attention to when we're reading the New Testament, and and I would say if you if you're not if your uh, if your awareness isn't raised for these kinds of issues as you read the New Testament, I mean it's true you're going to be missing something. I guess that's always the case. We're always going to be missing something as we read. But if your awareness isn't raised for some of these these issues, then. It's going to, uh, some of the things that are stated in the New Testament aren't going to make any sense. And so, my hope is that as we cover, as we go through the New Testament, we don't only just lay it out chronologically, but then it helps to put some of these very strange passages of Scripture into place so that they make a little bit more sense to us. Ultimately, we're going to get to the end where we're going to talk, go through the book of Revelation, which is, you know, probably the most. Uh, crazy book that is hard to understand. That Hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense as we get there. Uh, it's not going to be easy, but, it, but at least maybe it'll make a little bit more sense. The Old Testament is not merely drawing to a conclusion with the New Testament, but it's coming to its purpose. So, this is... If you just pause for a second, let's think about this. I want to go through this a little bit slower. Um you could you could think about the old testament as the end of the book right okay this is this is how it ends this is the 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 ending and th- that's true enough but it's more than that if we can take it just a step beyond that the old testament is not just coming to a conclusion it's actually reaching the purpose in other words without the new testament the 39 books of the old testament don't make any sense in fact, they just it just fails. The book of Malachi closes with a promise, but if that promise doesn't ever isn't ever fulfilled, it's an absolute failure. There's no question about it. Right? So the New Testament is really the the Old Testament reaching its its final purpose. This is what the whole new Old Testament was written about. Was getting to this point. And so all that means that all the things that happen in the, Old Test- in the New Testament, um, that, well, there's a lot of things, in other words, that are happening in the New Testament, that are trying to conclude all the things that opened in the Old Testament. So, uh, let's go through some of those. The Old Testament fulfills its narratival purpose in the New Testament. Don't look that word up in the dictionary. You probably won't find it, uh, but... <laughs> In other words, it's a story. So first, the the Bible itself is a story. And without the New Testament, that story is nothing. It's a whole bunch of promises that have been made and then just forgotten. It's a whole bunch of figures that have been laid out before Israel that are then just, they just disappear. And they're they're nothing. So there is a story that remains unfulfilled if not for the New Testament. It's just not complete. It's gone. Um, The Old Testament fulfills its historical purpose. That is to say, why has God created for Himself a people? Why did Abraham, uh, Israel, uh, David, why why are these people significant? Um, These are actual people in an actual place at an actual time that God came along and selected. He called Abraham out of the land of, of Ur, of the Chaldeans. And he brought him to the promised land. That's a real guy at a real place in history that he brought to here. And, he, and he then out from him, he created a people. And then that people then came a king, David. And he called him and he said, I, I'm making a promise to you. And that there's all kinds of people in between that he was actually dealing with. And then if it ends at the Old Testament, it was for nothing. That whole section of history absolutely doesn't matter. And if if I'm standing next to a Jewish person, they would say, Ah, oh, but it does matter. God came and He talked to Abraham and He dealt with Abraham and we learn lessons from Abraham and we learn things from David and we learn that obedience is what God desires. Yes, but... God made a whole series of promises to these people that He never fulfilled. God dealt with these people and did things for these people that never ended up coming to fruition. So, if it, if, if there is a God who's playing sick games like this, who cares? It doesn't matter, because what is the promise of eternal life or resurrection from the dead, then, if... He's done all this in history, and now he's dealing with us. We can't guarantee that we're ever going to get there anyway. So what does it matter? Historically, it really matters. So I want to go back and read some of these. I've gotten too much into the last few weeks and not reading the Bible. Let's do that. So it fulfills its narratival purpose. I want, I want to remind you uh, of how the Old Testament ends. Look at Malachi 4, 4-6. to 6. look at what he's telling them. He's giving them a promise. The Old Testament ends with that promise in verses 5 and 6. There's gonna, something's going to happen before the day of the Lord comes, and it's going to be that Elijah comes. I'm going to send Elijah first, and then the great and awesome day of the Lord is going to come right after that. But look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. How well has Israel done at keeping that law since he gave it to Moses. Not great. So, there is a story that's taking place, and God is telling Israel, the story is not finished yet. There's still more to come, and this is how you're going to know when it's wrapping up, or when the story is coming to a conclusion. In the meantime, keep the law. Well, they're not going to if history is any, is any reminder. So the point is that there is, a, there is an ending to this that's going to help make those commands make sense. And it's, gonna, it's actually going to fulfill the purpose of those laws. Okay, then, he's, then the Old Testament fulfills its historical purpose um, for all of these things. I want you to see Genesis 3.15. Look at how this flows, okay? So I want you to just kind of track with me if you can. I will put enmity... This is right after Adam and Eve fall. This is God giving the punishments to... uh, This is to the serpent, but it's to the man, woman, the serpent. This one right here is to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, who's he talking about there? Now, you and I are going to say, well, that, that's Christ that he's talking about. There's a promise there in Genesis 3.15 that there's something that I'm doing that I'm going to accomplish through this whole tragic set of circumstances. There is something that's going to be accomplished through this, and it's an offspring that's coming to do battle with the serpent himself, the devil of old, as it were. Okay, but then go to 12, Genesis 12:7. He 12, says, "Then the Lord appeared to Abraham Abram and said, "To your offspring, I will give this land." So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay, He says, "To your offspring, I will give this land." Who's he talking about there? To your offspring. Who is it? Got Israelites? You got Jews? Anybody else got another got offer another answer? Let's read the New Testament. Let's see what the New Testament says. The next verse, Galatians 3:16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That's what we just read, right? It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is What does he say? Who does Paul say he's talking about? He doesn't say he's talking to Israel or about Israel. He says he's talking about Christ. To whom does the land belong? To whom does the land belong? Christ. Why? Why does it belong to Christ? Well, we've got to answer that. We're not going to answer it right now. But there is an answer to that. There is a reason why the land belongs to Christ. You'll hear this a lot in Christian circles. There's a bunch of debates and things like this that go on and on and on and on and on and on. And there's all kinds of talk about the land. Well, the land, the land, but the land. The land was a promise. The land was a promise. The land's a promise. The land's a promise, and the promise has to be fulfilled because the land. Whom does the land belong? Paul says the land belongs to Christ. There's a reason for that, and we'll get to that, but I want you to track with what's being said here. There, There are people in history that God is dealing with, and He's making promises to, and there's a real group of people called the Israelites, who in the Old Testament are identified and called out from nowhere as the people of God, and made a people for His own possession, they they are they are real, and the New Testament has to show how that resolves. What happens to them? What happens as a result of Jesus and, and all that, right? So without the New Testament, this whole thing becomes null and void and ridiculous, and who cares really anything about it? 2 Samuel 7 12 to 13, this is God making a promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's he talking about? Let's say it louder. Okay, he's talking about Christ. But... Ultimately, he's talking about Christ. Is there anybody else that's meant? Solomon? Solomon's going to literally build a house in the name of God. He's going to build a temple. In fact, the next verse will go on to say that when he sins, I'll correct him. Right. So we would say, well, Christ doesn't sin. God's promise is really about the whole line of David. This is what's going to happen. The ultimate fulfillment of that is going to be a person named Jesus who is actually going to be a historical figure, and he's going to resolve this historical question mark that's left at the end of Malachi. Well, what happened to these people called Israel? And what happened to these promises? And what happened to this, this, these people that you created for your, yourself? What, what happened to Abraham and Israel and David and, and that whole line? And what, what happened to all those things? Well, then you get to Romans 5, 6, and it says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. So what the New Testament is doing is saying there is a a history problem with the way the Old Testament ended, that the New Testament is showing you how the people in history actually are resolved and how that whole thread there in the Old Testament is being wrapped up. And it all happens at exactly the right time. That means that... God, then, is actually crafting history and bringing Christ to a point in time in history that's the right time. That it's not going to be before that or after that. It was actually at the exact right time that He wanted it to happen. Okay, so the Old Testament fulfills the historical purpose of... uh, The Old Testament fulfills its historical purpose in the New Testament. The old, Old Testament fulfills its theological purpose in the New Testament. There's a whole mess of things in the Old Testament that are still up in the air. Things like atonement, propitiation, the law, the kingdom of God. All these things that are theological, we'll call them concepts, that are opened up in the Old Testament and never resolved. You never see where they actually end up leading without the New Testament coming in and explaining what, what happens to all these. So, I'm not going to read all of Galatians, but um, Paul is going to give an excursus in Galatians 3, 15 and following to kind of explain some of these theological concepts that are exposed in the Old Testament are actually resolved in the New Testament. He says, To give a human example, brothers, is Galatians 3, 15-29, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it, Once it has been ratified, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, some of you are going, what on earth? Don't worry about it. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Okay, so in some of this you're like, what on earth is he saying? Okay, we're not in Galatians right now and we'll get there. Okay, trust me. But what you can see is that Paul is taking this concept of the law and demonstrating how Christ is the unique one who could fulfill it. So it's a theological concept that remains a loose end unless there is a New Testament. Period. Alright? So its theological purpose is fulfilled in the New Testament. Here's a hard one. Its typological purpose is fulfilled in the New Testament. It comes to its typological purpose in the New Testament. Now, this is where some of us are probably like, what on earth is typological purpose? Uh, we've talked about types, typology. This is actually far easier than the word would make you think it is. You already know this, okay? When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he tells the crowd, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Is he pointing to a little woolly creature is on four legs saying bah on the on the shore no who's he pointing to christ you know that because of typology you, you wouldn't say that you probably would not tell your friends that but you know that because the lamb of the sacrifice in the old testament the lamb without spot or blemish that is given for atonement of sin is a type or a model or a picture of what the big kahuna actually is going to be like. Right? So God, in the Old Testament, is setting up tons of things. Tons of things. Time would fail us to cover all the things that are set up in the Old Testament as types that are then fulfilled in the New Testament. One of which is the spotless lamb. Here's God teaching Israel, here's what a spotless lamb is. It's used for sacrifice. Oh, by the way, the temple's eventually going to be torn down, and you're not going to be able to sacrifice anymore. Well, what's the purpose of that? Well, the New Testament comes in to explain how the spotless lamb's type has been fulfilled in Christ. He is the Lamb, not of you, not the Lamb of me, the Lamb of God. He's the one God is bringing to the table to pay the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. Another example of that would be things like the Passover. There is the blood of the Lamb that is spread on the doorpost so that the angel of death passes over the house and does not kill anyone covered by the blood of the Lamb. That is a type of Christ to come. That's a picture, a model, of what is going to be fulfilled in Christ. And now, you sing about things like that in church. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Right? That's That's... You singing about the type in the Old Testament that came to fulfillment in Christ. Without the New Testament, what is the purpose of the feasts and festivals that the Jews celebrate? Who knows? They're just perpetual symbols for nothing, apparently. Fifth, the Old Testament fulfills its covenantal purpose. This is probably the most important one. The Old Testament fulfills its covenantal purpose in the New Testament. The covenants are promises. God makes a promise to Abraham. God makes a promise to David. God makes a promise to many people throughout the Old Testament. Without the New Testament, those promises fall flat. It should be noted, I think, that 2,000 years would be the longest time God has gone silent in the history of His people. 2,000 years. So if the Jew is right, that Jesus is not the Messiah, then He will have gone 2,000 years without speaking to His people. We just went through 400 years of silence, of God's silence to his people. Now, we saw that actually he is working a lot through human history to bring about the birth of Christ. We get that. But there's no prophet in the land that's standing up saying, thus saith the Lord. The book of Malachi closes and it says, I'll see y'all in 400 years, basically, when I send Elijah along. 2,000 years is a long time to go silent, isn't it? It would be the longest that God did not have someone sitting on a throne, someone, a prophet, roaming around the land, speaking on behalf of him, on behalf of him to his people. It would, it would be a, a long time to not have a priesthood. Remember, Israel is ruled. Israel does not have a temple right now. They don't have anywhere to make sacrifice at all for 2,000 years. That would be the longest in, in human history that they've, they would have gone. So, if God is making a bunch of promises in the Old Testament, and, and then at the end of Malachi, that's, that's it. We're still just waiting for those promises to be fulfilled, we will have been waiting now 2,000 years for him to even speak. Which seems unreasonable. So, a serious study of the New Testament, which is what we're trying to do, we're not just wanting to go through book by book, which we are going to do a lot of that, but we're not just wanting to do that. A serious study of the New Testament has to keep track of all these themes Narrative narrative themes, story, historical themes, the purpose of the people and how they actually come to fulfillment, the theological themes, thinking about atonement and propitiation and law and kingdom and how we're saved and all those kinds of big theological concepts. We've got to keep track of those too because the New Testament is talking about those as well. Uh, Typological themes, the things that God is fulfilling from the Old Testament that were shadows. And some of them are weird. Some of them you're not thinking about that Matthew is going to say, this was to fulfill. And you're going to go, huh? That doesn't make any sense. But we got to keep track of those too, And covenantal themes, the promises that God made in the Old Testament that are coming to fulfillment, we've got to be reminded of those too. So that means you have to go through the New Testament really slow. <laughs> right? If you know me, you know I'm... More of the uh, tortoise and not the hare. Um, so we've got to keep track of all of those themes as we go through the New Testament, and that's what we're going to do. And so any given week, we might be in one or, or the other or all of them, and we're going to be in something of all of them tonight. Um, Matthew, in fact, the, actually the whole New Testament, opens with what? What is it? It's up there. Yes, you can cheat if you want to. What is it? A genealogy. Of Jesus, and you know, I, I, we obviously went through Matthew for a long time. I'm not going to pretend you remember any of those sermons, so I'm just going to go through it again. Um, <laughs> why not? Um, but, but a lot of people get to the genealogy of Jesus and they go, you know, they're in Matthew and they're like, why, why open your gospel this way? What this seems weird. And the genealogies, honestly, in the Old Testament. Let's just be honest. If they're in your Bible reading program, a lot of times you get to the genealogies and you're like. Yep, that one and that one and that one. <laughs> I can't pronounce any of these names, and you kind of keep going. And here's a rehearsal of all the kings. And we're actually going to spend some time on the genealogy in a couple weeks, but um, but it opens with the genealogy of Jesus, and and right in the first verse he lists some key names that are actually really important. And I want to I want to read Matthew one one so that you can see. This is not even really the genealogy yet. It's just kind of the the Agline, the first line of the genealogy, and he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So to give you an idea how slow we're going through the New Testament, we're not even going to touch the son of Abraham yet, all right? (laughs) We're just looking at the fact that he's the son of David. Um, There is a point in Israel's history where the, the kingship of Israel, and especially um, the royal dynasty founded by David, that the hope of the Messiah is tied to. So, in other words, there's a point in Israel's history where they start to look at the throne of David as the, their act, the source of their actual hope. If we have David's son on the throne... We're okay. And at the end of this whole thing, when God wraps it all up, when it's all said and done and all the kingdoms are shaken loose, what's going to happen is a son of David is going to be sitting on that throne. So when God takes the earth and just shakes it all loose like He's panning for gold, the one gold nugget that's going to be left on the mesh... When all the dust settles, is a son of David sitting on that throne. He is the one that's going to be the Messiah. So the hope of the Messiah rested on that throne. We see that in the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel, but also you can get a little taste of it in the psalm. Psalm 132, 11-18, listen to this. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body... I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my command, uh, my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. That is a king, to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies will, I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. You hear that? That is that is messianic. That is, that is the hope of of eventual salvation, and it's going to come through no other means than the son of David. And they're very clear on that. So, soon after David receives this promise in 2 Samuel, you can see this theme starting to develop in the Psalms and all throughout the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament. However, soon after this promise, the fortunes of David's house began to wane. Though there were high hopes in the Davidic covenant, that is the promise that God makes to David, There's, there's a lot of hope there, and there's the hope of the Messiah like we just read. So there's all that, but then David sins, then Solomon sins, and the kingdom is split, then Rehoboam sins, then, oh man, it's really torn to chaos then, then there's a whole bunch of people that come in to possess the land and lead them off into captivity... So this promise, this hope of the Messiah, then starts to take a dive, a lot. And Israel is destined to be ruled by other nations for the better part of a millennia, for some 600 years. You have one nation after another, either taking them off into captivity, bringing them back into the land, but ruling over them. After the northern kingdom leaves to Assyria, the Israelites are not one people and do not govern themselves really ever. And, and still to this day. So we're talking, what is that, 2,600 years roughly? That Israel has been without a solid kingdom ruling, being kind of autonomous as it were, or, or ruled by the Lord and by his king, by David's heir, as it were. So, for a long time. So this idea of the Davidic covenant begins to kind of take a dip at some point, where they kind of go, how are we going to get out of this, guys? How are we going to you know, have somebody on the throne? It was in these depressing circumstances that then the prophets come in, in the Old Testament, and they start to double down on the fact, no guys, really... It's still David. David is still the one that we're looking for. Look at Amos nine, eleven to twelve. It's in your handout there, verse packet. In the back. Amos nine, eleven to twelve. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So, Amos 9:11 says, No, no, no. It's not gonna be anybody else. I know we've got all this, the Babylonians, we got the Assyrians, I know we got all this, but don't despair. God is not slack concerning the promise that He made. To David, and it looks like he's forgotten. I get it. But he's going to rebuild the tent of David. Okay, now when he says he's going to rebuild the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, it puts in mind that he's going to restore Israel to its days of glory. Right? Doesn't it seem like that? Isn't that what it sounds like? When is this fulfilled? Has it been fulfilled yet? When you read it, you would go, no, until you get to Acts 15 and the New Testament church says it's been fulfilled as the Gentiles come to salvation. So many of these passages that are, lo- they look open-ended and look like, well, we've got to restore Israel to its days of glory. What we find out is actually God's done this in Jesus, who, by the way, as a reminder, owns the land. All right, just let me come back to that. Okay. And then look at Hosea 3.5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Who is David their king that they're going to turn to and seek? He's not talking about another son that's coming. Jesus is it. He's the end of the road. He's the Davidic king that they're going to turn and find. Okay, all right. So, uh, so there's this promise that it's it's going to be David, and as it gets really depressing, the prophets begin to speak confidently of the coming day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, where He comes and He restores David's fallen house and builds it up, and He's going to do that in Christ. So, in the prophets. The hope of the day of Yahweh and the hope of the revival of David's sovereignty tended to merge. So Yahweh's going to come and he's going to revive things, but also David is going to sit on the throne and he's going to put David as king. Oh, wait a second. The hope of the revival and the hope of salvation and David the king are actually one person. Not not two different things that God is doing. It's not as though God is going to restore a nation, lead them out of you know, slavery, through the wilderness, cross the Red Sea, and, and through the wilderness, and then into the into the Jordan, into the promised land again, and then, and then, oh, let's go ahead and put David's line back up on the throne. No, no, no. David's heir is going to do all of it. He's going to bring the revival. He's going to sit on the throne. David's heir is going to be the one so they start to merge and so he would inaugurate this golden age which not Israel only but actually all the earth will rejoice in the knowledge of Yahweh so you get a flavor of this in the old testament when you read Isaiah actually all the prophets but Isaiah 9 6 to 7 this is you're familiar with this one you've heard this one for to us a child is born to us a son is given The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. But then Isaiah 11, 1-10, There shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of what? The earth. So the the picture here that they're understanding, even in the prophets, is not only is David going to sit on the throne, but he's going to bring a council, a government, Not just to Israel. He's going to bring a government to all the earth. And everybody is going to seek after him. So what you might have been thinking, Israel, is that at some point your Messiah was going to come and kick out the Romans. But that's not the case. In fact, the one that's coming is going to do something far greater than that. He's going to judge the entire earth. He's going to be the king of all. Not just of some. Okay, so what we find out as we've been talking about over the last several weeks is that there were Jews that were supporting the Hasmonean dynasty as they kind of pushed back against the Roman Empire and they kind of kicked them out, remember this? And they they get the temple back and things like this. And there are a lot of people that are going, all right, Hasmoneans, we're finally free of the Greek rule and, and we're finally pushing back against all these people that are ruling over us but there's something that happened with the hasmonean dynasty that was a problem and that is there was one person who was both king and priest the second problem was that the hasmoneans you remember what tribe they were from levi do you see a problem with a levite being a king what's the problem the Levites are the priests. They're not the king. Judah is supposed to be the king. So if Judah is the king, we have a problem with a Levite sitting on the king, and not to mention, the Levite that's on the king isn't even the priest at the time. So that's a huge problem. So there's a, there's a, a group of people that are not really content with the Hasmonean dynasty and its priest kingship, especially since they were the tribe of Levi. And so, in the view of some, this was an attempt to overthrow the Davidic dynasty, and some, like the Essenes, we've talked about them, in Qumran, longed for a royal messiah from the line of David. So, what that meant was, there was a group of Jews in, in this time, when the Romans came in in 63, and, and took over, and sort of put the Jews under thumb that many in this group saw this as divine judgment over Israel because of what they had done in trying to overthrow the Davidic king. You can't kick out the line of David and try to replace him with the line of Levi. That's not going to work. So because of that, the Romans come in and they take over, and many people are going, that's the Lord's judgment on Israel for trying to overthrow the Davidic, the Davidic king. All right, so the Romans were also arrogant, though. And remember, let's go back to the beginning where we started. There is this guy named Herod who goes to Rome and goes to the Senate, and the Senate confers on him the title, the King of the Jews. So the Roman government is now under the assumption, forget tribe of Levi, forget not a descendant of David. we got a descendant of Esau on the throne, and we don't even care. So what do you think is coming to Rome as a result of that. So, from the narratives around Christ's birth, we see the affirmation of what was prophesied in the Old Testament in the prophets, and what God's people at this specific time are longing for the most. The One who is born who is going to sit on the throne of His father David, but who is also Messiah and Lord. So in the New Testament, when we get these, these narratives about Jesus' birth, it's not put in terms of, hey, great, he's finally here, the fulfillment of the promise. No, they they use the strongest language they possibly can use to describe the birth of Christ. Look at Luke 1. 32 to 33. I mean, these are all verses that you've heard a number of times at Christmas. This is the angel telling Mary that Christ is going to be born. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Forever and his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 2:11 For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. That is, who is the anointed one, God. Yikes. That's significant. I mean, that is strong language for this one that is born. So the New Testament then is not telling us, and pay attention to this, the New Testament is not telling us about a baby who is going to grow up to be a king. This is not Jesus is born and one day he will be king. It's telling us about one who is born king already. And this is precisely what disturbs Herod who is born. The king of the Jews. So you get the wise men, the Magi, coming to Herod in Matthew 2 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not born heir apparent, not born king to be, the one who is born king of the Jews. In other words, Herod, we know you're not king of the Jews, you're king in name only. But there is one who has been born king of the Jews. And Herod goes, stop the presses. What did you just say to me? And calls the learned men. and where, 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 Where's this guy going to be born? Well, Bethlehem is where he's going to be born. Notice where they show up. They show up in Jerusalem where Herod is. They show up to his palace. And the one that's born king of the Jews is not here. Why? Well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, okay. Okay. So they head out to Bethlehem. But this baby is David's son, we learn from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. He's David's son in a biological sense, which is why Matthew opens up his gospel with a genealogy. He wants you to see he's actually, literally, a son of David, okay, and the rightful heir to the throne. But he is David's Lord, in a theological sense so what do we get in Matthew 22:41-46 we get this explained exactly it says now while the pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them saying what do you think about the christ whose son is he this is Jesus asking them a question they said to him wait the son of david and he said to them how is it then that david in the spirit calls him Lord saying the Lord and he quotes a psalm here the Lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet David saying the Lord that is God Yahweh says to my lord sit under uh, sit, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy put your enemies under your feet If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. (laughs) I love that. So, So, what we see is that the promises are beginning to be fulfilled in this baby being born not just that he is a descendant from David, but that he is somehow also the Lord of David. Because what we find out about this one being born is that he's not just a biological descendant of David, but he is also God eternal, who was with him in the beginning as creation is made, who was with God and who was God. So he's both at the same time, truly and fully God and truly and fully man. So he's born king already. So then, what does Matthew do? Well, Matthew in his whole gospel is going to say, let's look at this, who is the king of the Jews actually? Okay, let's just play with this for just a second. So with respect to the narrative of Scripture, and starting with the gospel of Matthew, God's Messiah, that is Christ, is presented in Matthew as a rival king of the Jews. Both Herod and Jesus have this title right now at the very beginning of the gospel. And we find out who's going to keep it at the end. So you get Herod, who's king of the Jews, who turns around and goes, wait a second, somebody else is born king of the Jews? We've got to find this out. So one is going to seek to keep the title king of the Jews by might. He's going to send people out to try to kill the rival king. And he's not going to succeed. The other is going to gain the kingdom through his eventual death but only one can be truly king but i want you to see this at the very end of matthew so matthew 2 let's look at matthew 2 13 to 16 now when they had departed behold an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream and said rise take the child and his mother flee to egypt and remain there until i tell you for herod is about to search for the child to destroy him and he arose and took the child by his mo- and his mother by night and departed to egypt and remained there until, what is it? Until when? The death of Herod. Well, didn't turn out so good for that king of the Jews. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called, what is it? My son. So here is Jesus, the king of the Jews, being protected by God, and being called the son of God. And here is Herod, who is called the king of the Jews, going after the son of God, trying to kill him. It says, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained by the wise man. This coincides precisely with the end of Herod's life where he goes absolutely insane and starts killing everybody that he sees as a rival. But then look at the end and see what Matthew does at the very end to see if you catch the irony. Matthew 27, 37, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus is going to gain it by death. And you think, well, both of them died. Except that in the end of the Gospel, Jesus comes back from the dead. Who is the King of the Jews? It's Jesus. Only he is a descendant of David. Only he is rightful heir to the throne. Only he conquered death. At the point where you conquer death, you have unquestioned ascent to the throne. Right? If no one can kill you, well you're you become king by default. Questions. So far, so good? Hey, we're only on one word so far in the New Testament. (laughs) We haven't even got to Abraham yet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Two weeks. So next week we're not meeting. The week after that, we'll be back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful uh, to gather together around your word and to think through it deeply and study it and to really think through all of the many connections that are coming to bear here in the New Testament and just how... Even just from the standpoint of literature, the Bible is impressive. But impressive doesn't even begin to state what it is. We recognize that this is the divinely inspired and authored Word of God that has come to us inerrant and infallible, able to reprove and correct and rebuke and train us in righteousness. And for that, we are immensely grateful for the word that you have given us here and the unique way that you have presented it to us. And so we pray that as we give ourselves to it, you continue to correct us and train us in righteousness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.